Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. Make sure you know the key people before you need to know, because you can't get to know them after your trouble starts. Today's guest details what finance bosses should be doing now to better manage future compliance crises. He reveals what he really wants from his senior compliance executives and the common mistakes that those in that role make when interacting with top bosses at any business. He details what UK lawmakers missed when it came to mapping out post-Brexit reform of the city and why there's nothing to be gained from paying too much attention to political turmoil. Martin Gilbert is a city veteran with a long history in asset and wealth management. He co-founded Aberdeen Asset Management in 1983 and was its chief executive officer from 1991 to 2017, when the firm combined with a rival to form Standard Aberdeen, now Aberdeen. Among other directorships, he has chaired Challenger Bank Revolut since 2020 and asset management business, AssetCo, since 2021. Hi Martin, welcome to Following the Rules. Delighted to be here. You've spent almost the entirety of a 40-year career running firms, including Aberdeen Asset Management and most recently Asset Co. And Revolut, obviously the challenger bank that you chair. I'm sure that you've gathered a number of pet peeves about the compliance function during that time. What would you say tops that list? I probably had more interaction with regulators at Revolut than the asset management sector. But I'm very supportive of having a strong first line and a very strong second line whose job is to check on the first line rather than the first line relying on the second line, i.e. compliance, to tell them what to do. So I suppose one of my pet peeves would be the lack of compliance knowledge in the first line. The front-facing part of the business needs to understand rules better, whether that means putting people from compliance into the first line is one way or just making sure that people in the first line understand they can't abrogate responsibility to the second line. People in the first line would prefer to abrogate all responsibility to the second line but they've got to understand that they're running the business and what the second line compliance function is there for and often there's a strong misunderstanding in businesses which is why it's important that there is a strong compliance function in all financial service firms and especially asset managers. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Revolut as being the focus of your experience with compliance concerns. Can you tell me more about what exactly has been involved there? The thing that worries regulators, shall we say, about Revolut's of this world is just how big it is. 
with 20 million customers and the market share it has. And obviously, regulators, their primary concern is customer harm. So if you're by far and away the biggest in the UK, you're quite rightly a focus of regulators. There has been a lot of concern out there about the Financial Conduct Authority's resourcing and its ability to tackle an increasingly large to-do list, particularly as we navigate the post-Brexit area where the Financial Conduct Authority needs to take on more of the work that its EU counterparts used to handle. What's been your sense of the FCA's ability to regulate the industry? I feel sorry for the FCA because, of course, industry just goes and raids their best people. So it's difficult to, to retain staff because, of course, Every financial service firm that wants to know how to deal with the regulator goes and hires people out of the regulator. It must be a major issue for them, just keeping staff long enough to be an effective regulator. But I think they do a pretty good job under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And obviously this comes amid a period of turmoil within the UK government. We've seen the resignations of the Chancellor of the Exchequer and appointment of a new one and the resignation of the City Minister and ultimately the resignation of the Prime Minister himself, although Boris Johnson is planning to remain on as a form of caretaker Prime Minister currently. Does that turmoil concern you? I'm thinking particularly about the impact it might have on Brexit reforms and these reforms are intended to ensure that the City retains its competitiveness post-Brexit, but they have been subject to some delay and now, obviously, given the upheaval within the government, they will be subject to further delay. Any thoughts to share on all of that? Really, you need to not get distracted by economics or politics, because asset managers like to speak about politics and economics because it means they don't have to do their job, which is look at the companies they're supposedly <laughs> investing in mm-hmm. so and making sure they're invested in the right companies. The good companies globally... Can, can actually sidestep most political issues, inflation, these sort of things. So it's all about choosing good management teams and ignoring the Brexits of this world or looking at companies that are going to benefit from Brexit or well prepared for Brexit is, mm-hmm. is how I would look at it. Once lawmakers do get back to discussing Brexit reforms in Parliament, are there any specific changes that you think government officials are missing? Liquidity and open-ended funds, I would say, is a big area for regulators. And obviously, I've had experience of that with property funds. I'm of the view that if we're going to have illiquid assets in open-ended funds, we can't have daily dealing in those funds. So it needs to be more restricted. And the only way the industry will go there is if it's a regulatory requirement rather than a business requirement. It came to a head with the property funds during Brexit. If there isn't enough cash in the open-ended fund because the assets are liquid, the only way is gating them, basically. Whereas if it was an ETF or a closed-end fund where more permanent capital vehicles, the price would fall rather than uh, having to gate the fund. So, in fact, closed-end funds are a more suitable vehicle for uh, illiquid assets than probably a daily liquidity open-ended fund. 
Mm-hmm. So they need to rethink the structure of those funds. Yeah, I think so. And the regulators understand the issue very clearly. It's been mentioned on this podcast that lawmakers should take the Brexit opportunity to really fundamentally rethink asset management regulation and take a step back and see how perhaps the rules could be combined or fundamentally rethought. I wonder whether you had any views on that. So one of my main criteria for dealing with regulators throughout my career is accept what they say. And I've found it pretty time-wasting exercise to try and change rules because they take too long. So the way I've always run asset management firms is these are the rules, just adhere to them. Now, it's more difficult in the UK where we have a principles-based regulator than, say, Singapore, where I've operated for 30 years which is much more of a rules-based regulator. So in some ways, it's easier to deal with a rules-based regulator than a principles-based regulator. The principles-based regulator is really placing the responsibility on the management to adhere to the principles, which I think is good, but often people don't like it. Do you think Brexit is going well? I don't bother entering political arguments on whether Brexit should have occurred or not. My view has always been what's happened's happened. And because we operated in 80-odd countries around the world, things like Brexit were happening all the time. So Mm. uh, I do have a pet peeve with risk and compliance, which is they would tell me there's been a coup in Thailand. I would say, listen, I know there's been a coup in Thailand. I'd prefer if you told me there was going to be a coup in Thailand. So they tell you what's happened. And I joke with them all the time, you know. So just having done this for so long and so internationally, nothing has surprised me. Something's happening anywhere in the world politically. How involved do you get in hiring compliance professionals or how involved have you got in the past? Is there anything specifically that you look for in terms of skill set if you get involved there? I've always been involved in the hiring of the head of compliance. I always like strong interpersonal skills because I think if you've got strong interpersonal skills as compliant as it makes your job much easier Mm. because you can deliver a message more easily there's not conflict so like interpersonal Mm -hmm. skills coupled with good technical skills obviously and you've spent the vast majority of your career at that CEO or non-exec level. What tips would you give compliance officers listening to this podcast as to how best to interact at that C-level? It's very important that they do interact at the CEO level. If the head of compliance can't speak to the CEO, there's something wrong in the way that business is structured. You want flat organizations. And if I was in a position of the head of compliance, I would insist that you have uh, access to the CEO so that if any concerns, you can speak about them openly. I always had a very open relationship with compliance. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed dealing with compliance people, arguing with them, <laughs> telling them where they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> any common mistakes that you've seen made by compliance professionals interacting at the C-level? I've always said EQ. EQ is more important than IQ. And... Uh, that's the most common mistake I see is people with much more IQ than EQ or interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. And if you've got good interpersonal skills coupled with good technical knowledge, you'll go far in compliance. Okay. 
And we discussed Revolut earlier in this conversation. There are rumours that it's planning to list in the foreseeable future. We've also talked about the UK's efforts to rethink its rulebook generally. The UK has spelt out how it plans to rethink its listing rules in the post-Brexit era. I wonder whether you had any views on the efforts there and if you think UK policymakers are missing anything there. I think the UK policymakers are trying to make it more attractive for the Revoluts of this world to list in the UK There are two or three fundamental issues which they're trying to tackle. One is valuation. There is a perception you tend to get a better valuation in NASDAQ than you would in London. But that's a sort of market-related one. The Stock Exchange have done a good job in changing the listing rules, making it more palatable for founders to list in London by allowing dual-class shares, these sort of things. One of the other issues which I'm not sure we've tackled yet is governance. There's more focus on governance in the UK generally on companies listed Mm -hmm. in the UK. And you find that with some of these fintechs, governance doesn't sit easily with them. So things like dual class voting shares, the governance teams have tended not to like in the past. They've tended to be very focused on remuneration and these sort of things and stock option schemes these fintechs have are very important to the people who are working there so there's still a bit of understanding to go on that there's still a bit of work to be done i would say to persuade some of these companies to list here so anything that might encourage the likes of Revolut to list? All of these things, as I say, acceptance of dual-class shares, easier governance, these sort of things. The stock exchange are trying. They're trying very hard, as as are the UK government. So Mm -hmm. there's no lack of effort, believe me. It's just our sort of inbuilt caution as investors that's probably holding us back. So when can we expect Revolut to list? There's no immediate plans is what I would say. I think market conditions are difficult at the moment for all fintechs. The Mm. great thing Revolut has is it raised all the capital it needs last year. So we're entering a much tougher fundraising period for fintechs now. So a year ago, the companies held the upper hand. Now the investors hold the upper hand. Okay. And on the subject of entering a tougher economy, you have said that on the asset management side, weaker mid-sized firms will be history within five years unless they adapt their business models and product offerings. Do you still think that holds true? And what role can compliance officers play in that exercise of adapting the business? Yeah, I think my comment's probably a bit harsh. What I was trying to say was mid-sized firms are probably the most difficult area of asset management to be in, mainly because the big guys are going to do well and the boutiques are going to do pretty well. And mid-sized firms tend to have neither advantage of being big or being small, so you're caught in that middle ground. I think what compliance risk teams can bring to the table is pragmatism in these sort of situations. And try and have a culture of being a small-sized firm rather than have a compliance risk function that matches the big firm. Often smaller teams are more effective in my opinion, so I would try and keep it as lean as possible and making sure the first line understand their responsibility. Because if you've got a good first line that really understand the rules and uh, rules of engagement, etc., 
The second line's job is significantly easier. They're not having to teach people what to do. They're not having to do the job of the first line. Okay. What regulatory change are you watching on the EU side? We obviously focus this conversation on the UK side up to this point, but are there any major concerns or opportunities as the EU rethinks its various post-crisis rules? Not really. Obviously, most firms in this country uh, have to adhere to the EU rules as well as the UK rules because most funds were either based in Luxembourg or Dublin. Mm. But in our case at Aberdeen, it was uh, the US, the Australian, the Japanese, the Hong Kong. So we were dealing with regulators all over the world. So I've never really expended huge amounts of energy trying to change rules because I've left that to other people. Because as I said, I've found it's a very slow process getting rules changed in countries. It just takes too long. So my view is these are the rules in the EU. You just got to adhere to them. Mm-hmm. What's been the biggest compliance related regret of your career? We had a problem with splits in 2002 to 2004. So, I mean, that almost finished us as a business. So it was a really salutary lesson to us, really on the rules. Okay, and when you mentioned an issue with splits, you're obviously talking about Aberdeen's accusation of mis-selling trust to investors in the 2002 split cap scandal, which ended up costing thousands of investors millions of pounds, and Aberdeen struck a deal with the city regulator to pay a 78 million sterling settlement in 2004. The lesson I learned from that is make sure you know the key people before you need to know them. So you need to make sure that you know the head of the FCA, the head of the PRA, if you're a big firm, so that you can have some dialogue. And also, it's especially important, you know, newspaper journalists and editors, because you can't get to know them after your trouble starts. You can't stop a newspaper writing a story. You've got to write it. You've got to accept that. All you can do is try and influence the story by making sure that you have a fair hearing with them and they don't start off in a, with a perception that you're completely in the wrong because you know them already and they'll always give you a fair hearing if you know them. So those are the lessons I always tell people is get to know the key people long before you need to know them. I include in that the head of the Treasury Select Committee, by the way, as well. That's another key position. I know Andrew Bailey really well and I know Sam Woods well. I know Nickel, obviously, from his stock exchange days. Yeah. So that's what I mean. You've got to be able to have a dialogue with them. I found the heads of these regulatory organizations really, really good at what they're doing. And they've got tough roles. Stuff comes out the woodwork at the FCA that mm. they must think, what can go wrong today? Mm. Because obviously, Nickel Rathi and Andrew Bailey have both come under criticism from different groups. Nicol Rathi has been criticised by his staff for his handling of a transformation agenda to, to rethink the regulator to become a more proactive data-led regulator. And Andrew Bailey has been criticised for his handling of rising interest rates and not getting in front of that. But your view on them is that they're doing a good job, is it? Yeah, I think they're doing a really good job. I'm, I'm not quite sure why people think putting up interest rates is going to help with this inflation bubble we have at the moment, because I'm on the board of Glencore. And I can see what's caused inflation, which are really massively high commodity prices and coal going through the roof, these sort of things. And on the FCA as well, I had a session with the FCA on data-led regulation. And he's right. 
Let me give you an example. At, at Revolut, we have so much data mm-hmm. that is of interest to regulators. The data we have on what people are spending is phenomenal. We give the regulators that data. What I think would be much more efficient for the regulators is to go straight into our data rather than us write it out, send it to them, etc., etc. So they can see data in real time. And that's the sort of thing we'd love to work with regulators on to take it to the that sort of data-led regulation, where they're seeing the information much more quickly mm-hmm. than they're seeing it at the moment. And have you discussed that possibility with the FCA? Yeah, we spend a lot of time at Revolut with regulators globally, just because we are so big in various economies. And the data we have is of great importance to regulators. We can tell them that our cardholders spend most money in McDonald's shall we say, Mm. or that level of granular data. At the moment, they're very interested in looking at spending patterns. Are we seeing anything different? Is inflation creating hardship? And are we seeing people not spending money here or spending it here? So that's the kind of detailed granular information that the FCA are trying to get to. So Mm. they're more proactive rather than reactive. Mm And obviously, you joined ASICCO as chair in 2021. You've been going through a highly acquisitive phase. This year, you have announced plans to buy SVM, Asset Management, River and Mercantile and Rivera. What's next? I think we've got to get these bedded in. And so that's the strategy at the moment, is to integrate the ones we've bought and get them working. Uh, we're very small, so we want to be in that small area of asset management rather than the middle area. Because I wanted to ask you about that, because obviously with those acquisitions in mind, your AUM is 12.5 billion sterling currently. Do you have plans to grow to a certain size? And what companies are you looking to acquire to get there? Not really. We have a rough strategy, which is to try and partner with investment-led asset management companies. Because asset management companies fall into two types, investment-led or distribution-led In the future, I think we might actually have a third type of asset management company, which is technology-led. And Mm -hmm. I think asset managers have to go much more technology-led than they are at present. So we like the space of investment-led boutiques because they've tended to be very good at managing money for their clients, but have not been so good at raising money uh, because they've been so focused on managing money. And the problem is most really good asset managers think all that matters is performance. Performance doesn't sell, you've got to sell performance. So that's why we like those type of businesses because we can add a bit to them, we can run them a bit better and because we're all accountants, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, that's our rough strategy. And then we just see what comes up actually. So we're not so strategic that we know that in one month we'll buy this company, that company, that company. We're entirely reactive when it comes to what companies come up. Okay, but in a nutshell, it's companies that have a solid standing on the investment space but aren't doing enough to sell their skills. Yeah, Yeah, that sums it up. As I say, it's not something they prioritise. They prioritise quite rightly the running of the money. So that's where we come in. Obviously, the sexy bit of M&A is the actual agreeing to acquire a, a business, but the tricky bit is integrating it into the established business. I wonder whether or not you had any tips around that process and particularly any specific tips for compliance as to how they can play a role in that integration. 
If you include risk within compliance, they definitely have a role to play because the, the easy bit of an asset management M&A is integrating the front office. The, the difficult bit is the merging of the middle and back offices. So what I would recommend now to anyone doing it is not trying to merge systems. I would just have whatever operating system is your operating system and take whatever company you acquire and put it onto the one system. At uh, Aberdeen, as it's now called, we struggled because we were trying to merge two systems. And it took us a long time to work out what to do. So it wasn't the best merger I've seen of two companies. We should have moved much more quickly, made a decision which system we were going to use and moved everything on to it. Okay, so simplify as much as possible. Simplify as much as possible. So you mentioned technology-led asset managers. Are there any types of firms in that space that you would be very interested in acquiring? What I mean by that is asset management firms have tended to neglect the middle and back office systems because they've been so profitable. They've never needed to be really efficient in those areas. And that's what makes the compliance function so hard. And a lot of firms' systems are not good. One of the things that I see transforming the industry is more AI at the front level, helping fund managers. I'm not a great believer in purely AI running portfolios. I think the human element really does help. But much more technology in the middle and back office, much more straight through processing, these sort of things. And above all, allowing clients to access their portfolios and make decisions on their mobile phone, able to buy and sell funds quickly, able to buy and sell an ETF quickly. It's that sort of uh, technology. But what I do say to asset managers, and I was speaking to one of the biggest in the world last week, I said to them, you have the clients, make sure you don't lose the clients to the fintechs. So become a fintech yourself, disrupt mm -hmm. yourself and become a technology led business. Try and get rid of as many legacy systems as you can. And so in that journey from becoming a global asset manager to becoming a fintech, are there any particular types of tools that you think asset managers would look to? Any particular reg tech solutions that you would recommend asset managers seek to explore? They should be trying to improve their systems all the time, whereas they've neglected systems over the last 15, 20 years because they've never needed to become more efficient and as I say, an investment-led asset management business tends only to be interested in the investment machine. The rest is just hassle as far as they're concerned. They leave someone else to do that. And then the distribution-led one is interested in distribution and, again, is not interested in the underlying technology that the business is dependent on. So that's why I'm saying the CEO of the future is going to have to be more technology-enabled than they are at the moment. When you seek to grow AssetCo, are there any investments that you would avoid and why? We'd love to be bigger in private markets. And as you know, the world is split between public markets and private markets. Mm -hmm. And all the growth at the moment is in or was a private market. So we're avoiding buying those type of firms because the pricing is just so high. So that we will try and build organically rather than by acquisition. And then we like obviously active equities. It's a great area. Fixed is more difficult. When I started in asset management, interest rates were 18%. 
they're now at zero. So you can see we've had a 45-year run in mm -hmm. bull market fixed. So we're going to get a bit of a bear market in fixed, probably. So. And by fixed, you're talking about fixed income, yeah, debt Yeah, fixed income, yeah. debt. Aside from River and Mercantile, you seem to have a preference for Scottish businesses. Is that deliberate? No, not really. I mean, clearly, look, I love Edinburgh as a place to manage money, but mm. it's not deliberate. I ask because we're talking not too long after Nicola Sturgeon has sought to get the Scottish independence referendum back on the agenda. Are you betting on a second Scottish independence referendum taking place? We will just ignore it and just see what happens. As I said earlier, I've long since learned to ignore politics and look at the companies, so we'll just do the same and that. As I said, I'd prefer if our risk team told me it was going to happen rather than there's going to be a referendum. I'd prefer if they told me what the outcome of that referendum was going to be, because as I keep telling them, I know there's a referendum coming. I know there's been a coup in Thailand. I want to know beforehand, you know, so that's why I love risk people so much. They tell you what you already know. That's what I always say. I say, I already know that. So, uh, have you ever met a compliance risk professional that does have that crystal ball that has been able <laughs> no, to tell you in No, advance? they wouldn't be in risk and compliance if they did. They would be running a hedge fund. <laughs> what do you make of recent criticisms that the business that you've assembled so far are disjointed subscale and the synergies unclear. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's why we are doing what we, we do. We've only been going 18 months. So all of those points are valid. And what happens, obviously, scale will help. The more we do, the more we will be able to answer those very valid points. Okay, so they may seem disjointed now, but there's a yeah, grand yeah, plan yeah, that yeah, will yeah, join them together. Yeah. It's all in my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, can you give me any sense of, of what that is? <laughs> no, I think just create one equity platform will mm -hmm. make all these what appear disjointed to be joined up. And then I think the younger generation want thematic ETFs. They can understand a food fund. They can understand security, cyber, these sort of things. ETFs are a bit like closed-end funds and open-ended funds. They're a wrapper for existing capabilities. So there's no reason you can't launch an active equity ETF, for instance. Mm -hmm. So uh, ETFs are really of huge interest to the industry going forward. There have been systemic concerns about ETFs voiced in the past. Mohamed El Arian was one who's raised red flags a number of times actually around them. Do you share any of those concerns? His concern is just the huge size that passive managers have become. And that's why I make the point, ETFs are not just passive, they can be active. I think they do do pretty well as a wrapper. They're a more efficient wrapper, for instance, for illiquid funds, for instance, because they can trade at a discount because they're listed on the stock exchange. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they can't come up and down. So they're here to stay, ETFs. So you do share concerns around the size of the passive market, but... You can manage that by taking a more active yeah, well, approach. Well, I love that they're so big because it means that active managers become more relevant, especially mm -hmm. the smaller ones, because you've got the speed to react. So I look upon it as an opportunity rather than a threat. Uh, in the asset management business, you've got to remember it's a massively fragmented business asset management. It's not a consolidated business like mm -hmm. investment banking is. There are thousands and thousands of asset managers in the UK alone. It's very, very fragmented. So you just have to be good at it. Okay. And lastly, is there an upcoming or current challenge that you think the industry is not paying enough attention to? 
I think cyber would be the one that I would say is the biggest risk for the industry. I'm amazed there haven't been more cyber attacks with this Russia-Ukraine situation. You either know you've been attacked or you don't. One of the problems is people can be into your system for a long time. And that's why it's so important that you're really aware of cyber. Do you think that the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has focused the attentions of asset managers or financial institutions as to the need to invest in cybersecurity? Yes, okay. but I would say it's still a big risk for organizations. So their attentions are focused, but they still need to increase yeah. investment. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in a short space of time. So I really appreciate your inputs. Thank you very much for no, your time. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.